Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, welcome to Spiritland. I would like to start off by saying how amazing is Spiritland? <laughs> this is an absolutely fantastic place to be. The perfect place, I think, to have a, an afternoon celebrating the connections between Haruki Murakami and music. We are surrounded by speakers bigger than me, which is something I've not experienced for quite some time. Um, but we've got a whole afternoon of discussion and music uh, to talk about the various themes around Murakami's work. Um, later on, Alex Clark will be talking to the pianist James Rhodes to talk about the importance of music and deep listening in literature. Um, later on this evening, we will have Jeremy Wormsley, who's one half of the band Summer Camp and a big Murakami fan, talking together uh, with John Mitchinson, who is a publisher at Unbound, um, but used to be Murakami's initial publisher for Havel. Um, but to start off... I, Will Rycroft, who is the community manager at Vintage, I'm going to talk to Liz Foley, who is publishing director at Harvel Secker, and Suzanne Dean, who is creative director at Vintage, about publishing Murakami, how that works. Um, Liz, I'm going to start with you, because what I want to know is, what is the first thing that happens when you hear there's a new Murakami book? Well, the first thing is a, is a very secret phone call that I get from uh, Haruki's agent, and that is usually rather enigmatic in that all that we find out at that point is that there is a book, possibly what form that book is, be it short stories, non-fiction, or a novel. Um, and then when it's going to be published in Japan, and possibly even the title. So that is a very exciting moment because we begin with just knowing what the title is. And his titles are so amazing that you know, when you're called up and told you're going to be publishing a book called Colour de Sukuru and His Years of Pilgrimage that immediately opens up a world that if you're a Murakami fan, you start anticipating something with great excitement. So, yeah, that's how it begins for us. And then it can be a tantalising period of kind of weeks before we have any more information and can start planning our own publication once the Japanese publication has happened. And then, of course, once the Japanese publication happens, there's this issue of translation. And Murakami only works with a certain number of translators, doesn't he? He does. So at the moment, his three translators are Jay Rubin, who is the person who's uh, translated absolutely on music, um, Philip Gabriel, who uh, translated Colourless, which is the last novel that we did, and Ted Goosen, who did The Strange Library and uh, Wind Pinball. And in fact, actually, for 1Q84, which is a really huge novel that Murakami published, um, both Jay and Philip worked on that simultaneously. And Philip did the last volume and Jay did the first two volumes because of trying to make sure that we had it out as quickly as possible uh, for the English language readership. So, but they are his trusted translators and they've all worked with him for a long time. So having now got yourself a, a new manuscript, a new Murakami book, we need, to sort of, we need to turn it into an object. And this is where you come in, Suzanne. Uh, we need to talk about the design of Murakami because it seems to me, again, incredibly important to get the design of these books looking correct. We're surrounded by some of the paperbacks at the moment and you're holding the latest I'm holding, book. I'm holding the new one, absolutely, on music. I get given the manuscript and a brief by Liz and I have to say that Liz is amazing because she has trust in me and she lets me get on with things. And when you've got an editor that has visual sense, like Liz, and she trusts you, you're sort of halfway there to a really good cover. So anyhow, I have the manuscript, I read it, and what I have to do is to find the essence of that novel. So then I sometimes put up loads of things that are inspiration on my walls, or I just burrow down instantly and um, sometimes shut my door and stuff comes out. In fact, 
I have to say that the last time I was working on a Murakami project, which is the short story book that's going to come out, when is it coming out? Next year? Next year, yeah. Next year I ha- actually had to call Liz to say, please come upstairs and stop me producing any more and tell me which ones you like. And I had about 15 covers laid on the ground and then we selected those. It was very horrible. Yeah. Very <laughs> so anyway, I'll, I'll talk you through what happened. So I'm looking for the essence of this book and obviously it's about music. So I've chosen a blank... Um, music sheet and these staves that work across it so that's pretty straightforward and obvious and then the um, large circle that falls across the page and I've sort of worked this motif into Murakami's covers for quite a while now as you can see they work across all his backlist and it's kind of become a branding tool for his books um, along with the font which I've kept the same quite a few books now and um, then the cover's given extra depth by using bronze and having this shading around the circle so it kind of looks like we're cutting through music sheets and we're revealing more information about the music which is essentially what the book's doing and then I was looking for some icons to put on this because I didn't want um, musical notes or anything that was too cliched so hence birds because of course they are like they produce music, and actually it looks like the two of them are having a conversation on the front cover, so that was my idea. And then that goes to Liz, and she says yay or nay. And then it goes to a cover meeting, and they say yay or nay. <laughs> and then it goes to Murakami, who says yay or nay. <laughs> <laughs> so once you've got three yays, yeah, you get I'm to there. go yay. Yeah. 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 Now you've mentioned there about the, sort of the, the circle motif that's on the front mm. of Absolutely Your Music is something that runs through these, yes. these paperback covers All as well. All the paperbacks. And so you, you have to create a series design for that. And I would yes. just wonder how, how you settled on circles, where that came from. And Actually, that's... That's an odd tale because I was looking to do something quite quickly for a series of e-books and I was just saying, okay, let's use the circle, use the circle and then um, the publisher of Vintage came to me and said, these look so good, I think we need to change the whole of the backlist and I went, (gasps) you know, how many are in the backlist? And... um, so I said, well, okay, we have to commission someone properly, an illustrator, to do it. And I had an illustrator in mind. And he's um, an Israeli illustrator who's quite famous, called Noma Bar, and he lives in London now. And so he came into the office and we talked about Murakami and all the different books. And then he then created the images using a grid that I'd given him, which was the circle, and a limited palette. So you can see they're all of the same kind of palette, but they're used in slightly different ways. Mm. And what's interesting about... Um, Noma's work is that he uses negative space and he's really quite playful which I think Murakami is in his work and so they seemed a great match and they cohere brilliantly I think mm. they still look fresh yeah I'm, I'm particularly impressed that Liz is almost dressed as a Murakami cover today because she's wearing the signature colours of black, white and red <laughs> so if you want to dress like Murakami that's the way to go um, okay so now we have book we have design and we need to sort of tell the world about this new book. And I wondered, Liz, if you could tell us a little bit about what it's like to sort of to publicise Murakami, to tell the world about a new book. How, how do you begin there? I mean, do you get to do it with him? or? Yes, well, it's, uh, it depends, actually. And what's really good is that he doesn't always visit for publication. 
but he's very open to the ideas that our kind of teams come up with, creative ideas of talking about his books even when he's not going to be able to be here with us. So we've done things like this event, and there'll be there's a Spotify list that Knopf have put together that will go out in a, in accompaniment of this with this book next week, so that you can listen to the music that's in the book. So we do things like that. We did for Win Pinball, um, we made a pinball machine that went and lived in some bookshops and now lives in our office. Um, and for Strange Library, we had a, a live reading, and again, that book's quite a special design object because it looks different in the UK to how it does in the US, it's fully illustrated, and Suzanne put together everything, all the internal illustrations as well as the outside design for that book. Um, but obviously the best thing possible is when we have him here. And I've been kind of working on and off with Murakami books since 1998, and I think twice we've had him here since then. And the last time was for the publication of Colourless, and that was that was really actually amazing, because I, you know, we've had author's visit from around the world. We are a very international list. But when he came, we had an event at the Edinburgh Festival where literally people were jumping over the seats to get to the signing queue because they were so excited about meeting him. And the event had been really great. He's very humorous and entertaining um, to see speak. But we also then had another signing in London at Waterstones where people were queuing up at 10 o'clock in the, e- in the evening the night before the 11 o'clock in the morning signing in order to make sure that they they got to see him at that signing. Mm. And that was really something special in that, because when we came into the bookshop, there were lots of people kind of dozing in amongst the crime fiction aisle, waiting (laughs) to meet him. And and when people were coming up to have their books signed, because when he signs, he also has uh, a friend of his stamping, because he has a stamp that goes with his sign, uh, with his signature. And um, people were really moved about meeting him. And that really brought home to me how... The way that he writes about alienation, the way he writes about kind of the bewildering aspects of the world, uh, he genuinely has helped a lot of people. I mean, they were saying that to him, and people mm. were really quite choked up about meeting him and giving him all sorts of presents, cakes and books and pictures. And it was actually one of the most, yeah, one of the most sort of emotionally resonant signings that I've ever been to because there was just so much, yeah, so much feeling in the room for him and for what his work had done for people. We have finished our first session of chatting. There will be some more later. In between these sessions, DJ Tony Higgins is going to be playing some fantastic Murakami-inspired music, um, which is just going to make today a joy. I shall hand over to him now, but thank you to Liz and to Suzanne for telling us so much. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you, everyone. I'm joined now by James Rhodes. Thank you so much for coming to see us. You have just got off a plane, haven't you? I have, yes, from Barcelona. You're going to talk to us um, today about these sort of connections between music and reading and deep listening, aren't you? Deep listening. Deep listening, (laughs) um, which, of course, is what Spirit Land is is Mm. all about. Um, You've been reading reading, um, this this new book by Murakami. Just just tell me a bit about... um, the sort of connections that he makes? Well, for me, it's a proper geek fest because I'm a classical pianist and it's him and Seiji Ozawa who I've worshipped since I was that high. I met him in an airport once and I think he was slightly astonished to be recognised because that doesn't usually happen with classical musicians and I wouldn't stop talking to him. But this is just those two talking about stuff that I absolutely love. Um, His encounters with other musicians like Glenn Gould and Leonard Bernstein and him conducting the Berlin Phil and, you know... It's very, it's very detailed, but it's filled with kind of facts and, and wonderful anecdotes that I really like. It's interesting, that idea that a writer, obviously, as we, as we all know, a writer to whom music means a lot, that different language mm-hmm. of representation, um, 
puts those questions to say, she goes, oh, well, what kind of things is he most interested in, in drawing out? Well, he's extremely... Murakami seems... Uh, he's incredibly knowledgeable. So they, were, they listen in the book, they listen to different recordings of the same pieces, and it's astonishing just how much he knows. He can tell the difference in recordings from one orchestra to another, and German orchestras sound different to American orchestras. And so he obviously, he really, really knows his stuff. I mean, it's almost like two really professional classical musicians talking. Can you just, just give us a bit of a hint about how, if you are composer, conductor, you work, um, or a musician indeed like you, how much the sort of written word means to you? Because it is such a different medium. It's such a different it's way of different, thinking about the world. But as listeners and readers too, I don't think we have to be as specific as musicians and writers. It's one of the things that always astonishes me is we will listen to an album a hundred times, but we will very rarely read a book more than once, maybe twice if it's really good. Um, and that's something that I've always found, and I still don't really know why that is. Um, I think maybe it, we're very unused to active listening, perhaps. When you're reading, you have to concentrate. And often with music, it's very easy just to kind of let it wash over us. And so we can listen to something again and again and again. And I think sometimes we think if we've read a book once, that's it. We've got everything we can get out of it. And I think we lose a lot by doing that. I think it's quite nice to go back every year or two and, and read kind of old favorites again. I've always thought with music, if um, I was in Barcelona and just played to a 1,000 people and every single person in the room would have had different pictures and stories going on in their head while I was playing Chopin or Beethoven or whatever. Um, books, it's, I think that's slightly harder, obviously, because the written word... It, was it, this will sound really pretentious, and I don't mean it to be, but um, Ian Forster said something like, classical music is the deepest of the arts, and it's deep beneath the arts. And for me, that's the great thing about music, is it goes underneath words, um, and we can kind of make up our own storylines and our own... Um, images and pictures while we listen to it and what might seem terribly sad to one person might seem very uplifting to another with music but with words it's almost it's more prescribed isn't it because in a way the author is telling you what the story is and, and how to think about that um, so I guess the challenge in reading a book is to take away your own personal um, take on it which is quite hard sometimes. I think you have to really concentrate quite hard, which you, I'm not very good at. You um, have to try and find space in a narrative in sort of black and white, as yeah. it were, in type, yeah. to, to sort of insert your own kind of imaginings, I suppose, is yeah. one way to sort of think about Absolutely. it. But I wonder, actually, if, if thinking about that, that is one of the joys of a writer like Murakami, that there is this deliberate idea of encouraging readers to lose themselves, to be mystified and to be sort of confused and come up with different kinds of solutions. I think that's the whole point, is to, to lose ourselves. There's never been a more <laughs> important time to lose ourselves, as anyone reading the newspapers will know. Um, mm. Everything's just gone to shit in 2016, hasn't it? And um, This idea of fantasy, of escaping in music or in a book... And these are the last places we can go. The yeah. concert hall, now they have Wi-Fi on airplanes, people are making calls on tube trains... Concert hall is the last place we can go where we can just switch off. We're not assaulted by reality TV and Tinder and Simon fucking Cowell, and we can just close our eyes and disappear for an hour. And, mm. and I, the best books for me are the ones where that happens, where time disappears as well. And um, I think it takes a writer like someone like Murakami to be able to elicit that response. 
can I come back to something you said earlier, which was really interesting about the idea of music as something we can all just sit there with pictures going through our head, mm-hmm. with stories arising. Did, was that something that happened for you very early on in your life? I mean, you have written about your experiences of music in your memoir, Instrumental, to such sort of devastating kind of effect. But was that something, that idea of narrative inside your head, something that arrived yeah. early? I wouldn't call it narrative, because I think when you're six, seven, eight, which is what I, how old I was when I started listening to classical music, because I was a weird kid... Um, I couldn't put words to it, but it did provide this sense that the world is actually quite a lovely place and there's safety in that. And it was an escape. It was a wonderful, wonderful escape. And um, it, did, it did make sense. There were wonderful colours and feelings and stories and characters that just came to life um, in my head while I was listening. And, um, but I think that's pretty universal. I think the one thing that all teenagers everywhere in the world is obsessed with is music. There's more snobbery in the school playground over which band is better than you'll ever find at Covent Garden or, or the Festival <laughs> Hall. And, um, and there's a reason for that, because it is it, it does have this magic effect on us. Yes, it is also about creating your identity, isn't it? Perhaps that's why it means something to us when we're, we're young, when we're teenagers, as you say. It, it's yeah, tribal it gives a lot us of the time. signposts towards our own identity, perhaps, when we're trying to figure out what that is. Um, and some of the enthusiasms um, that, uh, that this book, um, that Murakami talks about, are your, are your enthusiasms too, aren't they, as you were saying? Oh, completely, but in a very niche, kind of weird, geeky way. Um, <laughs> I, Feel free all these to stories, geek out. Like when he talks about being at the concert when Leonard Bernstein was playing with Glenn Gould and they were doing the Brahms' first piano concerto and, and Bernstein and Gould had had a big argument before about the speed of the first movement and... Bernstein goes out on stage in front of the audience and says, Mr. Gould is coming out, and they all giggle, and he says, but I have to tell you, as the conductor, I do not agree with his interpretation. Um, Having said that, I will defer to him, so this will be a slightly strange performance, which is as kind of thug life as classical music gets, I think. (laughs) But but to me, I've known that story for ages, and it's also, it's completely, it's wrong too, because... Are you sure it's okay to talk about this? Because it seems a bit weird, but because Zimmerman, a few years later with Bernstein, recorded it, and it's exactly the same bloody tempo. Because it's Zimmerman, it was all fine, but because Gould was a bit of a renegade, he got a lot of shit for it. But actually, it was a really great performance. And So the idea of a conductor apologizing in public for what his soloist is about to do... To me, I, I eat that stuff up. I love it. I lap it up. But I just can't imagine other people thinking, oh, what an amazing story. I, I've got to remember that for the next dinner party. And I, I, well, I don't know. I think, it got, I think it went down pretty well in this show. I think that's pretty fascinating, actually, because partly it brings up the question of, obviously, a sort of uh, a hierarchy um, yeah. and the idea of correct interpretations. That's also, exactly it. But interpretation is the key thing. They talk, like, for thousands of words about the different interpretations of Beethoven's third piano concerto and, and where he does amazingly well, which is so challenging. Have you ever tried to write about music? It's so hard. It's so hard to, you know, you, you have such intense feelings about music. And then, because um, I wrote a book and I had to write about music, and it was it's much easier to write about other things than writing. But how do you translate what you hear in here into words that people will read and then understand what mm. you're trying to say? And they managed to really explain that, the difference in interpretation and how one, 
one version of Beethoven 3 can sound much more kind of visceral and argumentative and kind of at odds with the conductor, and another can sound very kind of fluid and relaxed. And, um, and I've played the thing, so I kind of understand that, but as someone who isn't that familiar with it, I, I imagine it must be quite challenging, but he seems to do it really well. Did you come down in that particular instance? Because it it's really interesting who, as it were, sort of for that moment only, owns that piece of music, the person playing it or the person conducting and orchestrating it, neither of whom have actually composed it. It's just The composer owns it, obviously. It's always the composer, and all the musician can do is um, try and do the best job possible with the idea in his head that if Beethoven were in the room then, he might be gracious enough to kind of high-five him afterwards and say, that was great. Um, <laughs> although he was completely deaf, so he wouldn't care, I don't think. But, I, I, yeah, I think we have to remove as much ego from the performance yeah. as possible and just say, listen, holy shit, listen to what Bach wrote when he was out of his mind with grief, when 11 of his 20 children had died and his wife died and his siblings died and his parents died and he didn't just sit at home drinking special brew and like feeling sorry for himself. He wrote 3,000 pieces of music and he taught the organ and he conducted the choir and he wrote for the church and the court and his students and it's astonishing what he managed to do. What you're you're saying there is, is what you're calling into the room is really the intense emotion that can accompany the playing of music, the composing of music, the listening to music. The reason why 300 years later we're listening to Bach and in 300 years we're still going to be listening to Bach. I don't know if we're going to be listening to Muse in 200 years, but we're sure as shit going to be listening to Chopin. But there, there's a reason for that. It's not that one is better than the other. I just think, for me, it's always, classical has always had a certain kind of depth and longevity about it because it, it is, in a 15-minute piece or a 30-minute piece, it takes you, even in a five-minute piece, it takes you through every emotion known to man. Mm. And even when they're painful emotions, it's still beautiful. Mm. It's like a magic trick. Can I ask you about those sort of categories, though, when you, you say classical music, but would you then, for example, extend that to jazz music? I hate, yeah, I hate the segregation. I, I hate the phrase classical music. I use it because there's no other word. I, I, on, I did a thing a while ago, and um, I said on Twitter, is there another phrase for classical music? And um, there were a lot of responses. There were shit music, <laughs> dead music, boring music. Um, and I, I just preferred music. I, there's so much segregation. We have jazz and rock and classical and grime and pop, and we have different radio stations, and we dif different sections of the iTunes store and different concert venues for different... And I, it's so bizarre, and classical is... It doesn't do itself any favors. It's filled with awful people who just do awful things and say terrible things and have to wear ridiculous outfits and never talk to the audience and make you feel like it's been appropriated by a certain kind of person, and you have to understand sonata form in Beethoven's Vienna to appreciate And it's all bullshit. The only thing that is important is the music. And I, it breaks my heart that... What are there, 70 million people in the UK? I, I imagine there must be 60 million who have never heard an entire Beethoven sonata, the whole thing. And I think there's something really, really wrong with that. Joe, thank you so thank much. You. That was so galvanizing Good. and really, really interesting. Yeah. Thank you for coming, coming and spending thank some time with me. us this afternoon. Yeah. Yeah. 
Ladies and gentlemen, uh, we are now going to go into the third and final session of our Murakami on Music Vintage Podcast Live. I want to start off first of all by saying a huge thank you to DJ Tony Higgins, who's been playing some amazing music. Oh, yes. He's being humble, but he knows he's got the jazz. Anyway, in this third section, we're going to be talking about Murakami and about music once again. First of all, with John Mitchinson, who is publisher with Unbound, but who was publisher at Harvel. And would I be right in saying possibly, John, the man responsible for bringing Murakami to an English readership in the first place? Well, I, I, was, I wasn't the very first. The very first uh, Murakami published in the UK was published by Hamish Hamilton, in fact, in 1990. But it, it got very few reviews and didn't sell. <laughs> and I was one of the... I was a bookseller at the time, and I had read Wild Sheep Chase was the first one, which intrigued me because it was his third novel and by that stage he'd, also, he'd already become a, a best-selling Japanese novelist and I couldn't quite see why he wasn't going to become a best-selling uh, uh, novelist in Britain and America as well. Um, and then life changed. I found myself being delivered by post the manuscript of the translation of um, Wind Up Bird Chronicle. And the rest, as they say, is history. Is history. Um, I, I asked, on my way here today, I asked uh, Vintage's followers on Twitter what their favourite Murakami novel might be. And A Wind Up Bird Chronicle is actually one that came up again and again and again. It is actually my personal favourite, but also Jeremy. Uh, this is Jeremy Walmsley, who's a musician and one half of the band Summer Camp, and a big Murakami fan. But I think it's one of your favourite novels as well, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I, I love it. I also love the short story that it uh, originated yeah. from in uh, The Elephant Vanishes. Yeah. Which is a, a great, I think, great introduction to Murakami's work as well. For yeah, brilliant. I think it is actually. I think if you haven't read Murakami before, I'm presuming everybody here has. But if you haven't, then his short story collection, The Elephant Vanishes, is a brilliant way of getting a sort of taster because it gives you everything that is Murakami um, in several digestible sections. John, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about what it felt like to be publishing Murakami sure, at I the mean, outset. I mean, I'd read, I'd read. Hamish Hamilton did Wild Sheep Chase, and then a year later they did uh, uh, Hardball Wonderland at the Edge of the World, at the End of the World, both of which I thought were just remarkable. I mean, I, I think you kind of... Murakami is one of those writers, you remember the first time you, you read Murakami, right? Mm-hmm. There's, there's, I would say within a few pages, if you gave me a, a Murakami novel, uh, even in translation, you would think, I know what, I, I, I'm in this strange world again where this weird 30-something man is kind of cooking or listening to music as we'll go on and kind of musing philosophically about life and then weird shit happens animals will arrive and then weird more weird shit happens and then animals are talking and everybody there's always disappearance and he's kind of always very cool and you know slightly bewildered Mm. and then there's more or less no resolution of any of the mysteries by the end of the book (laughs) But it's and the yet. getting, it's the getting, but yet, and it's the getting there that counts. So when, you, when I first read it, I, I just seemed to me that he was, it's that, it's that high, low, popular, popular kind of, uh, you know, uh, literary thing. He's, you're continually feeling like you're in some kind of thing where you, you, you don't know which way's up. He, I mean, he's one, he once said that he doesn't do magic realism like Marquez, where the whole point is, is not to draw attention to the fact that you're in a magic realist world, you know, that you make the magic, magical world seem as real. He kind of says, look, all this, all this, this is just a stage set. These are, all these walls are made out of paper. This isn't, none of this is real, which almost makes it even more. But somehow manages to do that in a way that doesn't make you not enjoy the narrative. John, do you think that's, that 
just to bring in the idea of Marquez and the, the, the South American magical realists, and of course we sort of relate that that in, in time-wise to, to the emergence of people like Salman Rushdie, for Angela Carter, for example. But do you think that Murakami is writing out of a really different tradition? Yeah. Is it um, that sort of tradition, do you think? Yeah, I think Murakami is... I think he's a loner. Sui generous. I think yeah. he is genuinely... I think it, what he once said was... He wanted to write a book that, that combined Chandler with Dostoevsky with a bit of Kafka thrown in. So he was definitely thinking about... Kafka is that, yes. He, he was thinking about European literature, not Japanese literature. But at the same time, when people say, oh, your books are very, you're very westernised, he said, no, they're, they're about life in Japan now. I think, it, he, I think he really is... I think he is that unique. I mean, going back to, to the original question, so when you got the Wind-Up Bird Chronicle, uh, the thing that blew me away was having had the first, read those first two books, suddenly there was this incredibly moving central section of Lieutenant Camille's uh, me- war memories. That, I mean, uh, you know, once you've read the skinning scene and the, the scene in the well, these things like, I mean, you really... Uh, one of the amazing things about books is how little we remember of them. So I've just through the, thanks to William's kind invitation, I've just reread the Wind Up Bird Chronicle and the good news is it's even better than I remember. I mean, it's an amazing book. Uh, it's an amazing book, but what, how much I'd forgotten is an, it's an astonishment. I mean, mm. I always think of that great line of Woody Allen's when he said, I've been doing a speed reading course. He said, I've just finished War and Peace. It's about Russia. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess, you know, it's a bit like, I've just, yeah, it's, it's about Japan or whatever. But, uh, but the, the bit that you do remember, I think everybody who remembers, is the, is the two, is the Lieutenant Kamir at the bottom of the well and uh, the sun and the light and, the, and then uh, Toru putting himself <laughs> in the way that only... A, you know, you, this is the thing about who would even do that? Who would, who would buy a rope ladder and put themselves in the bottom of a well because their wife had left them <laughs> uh, in some weird way? But that's the mad thing is that uh, you are, once you get into the logic of a Murakami novel, you can't, you know, you, you want to know what happens, even though you know he's not really going to give you that, that absolute kind of... I think sometimes he does. I think some of, some of the, the books he does. Norwegian Wood is a very realistic mm. narrative, mm. but... Um, Jeremy, I wanted to ask you because you're a big Murakami fan and I, I mentioned earlier that you're a musician so it'd be very easy to kind of go, well, is it probably because of your connection music-wise? Because we've been talking all day about how much music sort of infuses Murakami's writing. But it's probably not that simple. Would you like to sort of say what it was that first you know, really helped you attach to Murakami as a writer? Uh, I remember just, I think, that, that sense that he had this whole world that you could just sink into and uh, completely lose yourself from uh, what the real world was like, which obviously at the moment (laughs) in the current climate people might be quite keen to do. Uh, You know, like really like no no other author, he he just creates a reality that is recognisable but isn't ours. And I've always wondered how much of that is down to the fact that Japanese culture and life is very different to the, the life that we live here and I've been lucky enough to visit Japan a couple of times which hasn't really shed any light on that (laughs) question Uh, and yet at the same time there's something so familiar about it and I think a big part of that is you know his his frequent use of music as a kind of anchor to say if you if you know the music he's talking about then it instantly gives you a a sense of the atmosphere of the the, the kind of personality of the, the characters 
I guess it's kind of like shorthand to tell you what the world's like and what the people are like. Yeah, I don't is, it, it's a bit like a, is it a bit like the sort of underscoring you have in a film, which I'm afraid nowadays you often get that very lazy underscoring, which kind of goes, "This bit is sad," mm. or "This bit is thrilling." You know, no, I don't, I don't think it's like that. But it's not quite like that. Is it's it? more like cultural. It's more like saying, "These are the, these are the reference points of the world. These, this is what the world is like." And and, and he's interesting, isn't it? The way he uses, um, he tends not to be, he tends not to show off. Mm. With music, yes, yeah, it's he not tends to, make to use. Cool. He, he tends to use kind of things that are um, accessible. Not, not you know, he's not showing off his knowledge. He's obviously you know jazz aficionado, but you know when he asked him what, what what's your favorite jazz, he said you know Miles Davis, kind of blue. Yeah, mm. and which I is was, pretty cool. And, an and when he, somebody once asked him what about Coltrane, he said no, too insistent. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which I cut is brilliant actually. There's, there's exactly. one, there's one, I can't remember which book it is. But there's one scene where a character comes home and, and puts some records on it. One of the records that he puts on is the uh, the disco version of the Star Wars theme. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I also like that I read an interview where he was, um, I think, on the, in, in Kid A. Uh, there's a ref- Murakami reference, and he got really excited that Radiohead were. Oh, yeah. That Radiohead work more And well, Johnny Greenwood, of course, yeah. scored the uh, Norwegian Wood film. Yeah, so. absolutely. There is that, that I think it's slightly what you were saying that kind of hits on something about him, which there is this huge delight in the whole of the world, isn't there? There's sort of, mm. pick, it's a kind of magpie tendency to bring in cultural references and story ideas. He, he says, he, you know, one of the things about Murakami is he's really easy to read. So, uh, uh, you know, that it's not difficult in that formally difficult, you know, in that sort of Finnegan's Wake type of formally. But he always says he wants to be kind, he, that he's kind to the readers. The, what's mysterious is where the hell he takes you, you know, this sort of strange journey down into the basement of his unconscious and, you know, and how everything fits together. But the, the surface narrative is usually very, you know, it's, it's, it's deceptively kind of gentle. And he kind of leads you along on this I mean, they are. They're sort of the weirdest detective novels ever, mm-hmm. ever written. Yeah. And he's also, I love the other metaphor he always uses when you, he talks about his work, is the, a cabinet of, of, uh, with, tr- with, with drawers in it, and that's memory. And mm. he's really said, you know, if I'm good at anything, I'm just quite good at being able to choose the drawer and op- open them. And then the, book ki- the books tend to be, you know, he doesn't know where he's going with his books. Uh, that, that sense of it being open and being open to possibilities which I think is uh, I like that code thing when he's writing he has the most extremely I mean ridiculously s- sort of monastic routine he gets up at four in the morning he writes for five hours then he runs ten k- kilometres and maybe also swims fifteen hundred metres and then is in bed by nine and he can do that for six months it's a sort of self-imposed kind of discipline and I think and then is when he's not writing then is his life quite different or is he, do you just mean he gets up at 5am or something I, d- I don't do you know just, if you, have you read his um, what I talk about when yeah. I talk about running which is a book where he talks a lot about his creative yeah. process and it sounds like it's pretty much a 365 days a year kind of kind of life for him and he has a lot of he's very prolific as well as his novels yeah. you know he translates other authors and he writes all kind of non-fiction stuff as well doesn't he so I think the impression I got anyway from that book, you would know much better than me, but it sounds like... Well, Jeremy, you mentioned that, so what I talk about when I talk about running, about Murakami's obsessive almost running, but it does speak about 
creative process, really. Yeah. And I wondered whether for you as a musician... Well, I found it very inspiring. I mean, it actually got me running as well, which right. he says in the book, uh, if it gets in a running, he'll be really pleased. <laughs> That's not the point of the book, but if anyone's thinking about it, I'd uh, recommend reading it as a kind of get-off-your-bum kind of uh, <laughs> prod. Uh, yeah, I mean, his creative process, the way he talks about it, he says, you know, writers need, they need talent, but they also need endurance. And I, I've always believed that the key to being successful in, in any creative field is, okay, you need, you need a bit of a, you need something to get started with, but really what distinguishes those who are successful from those who are not is the ability to stay on even when you're not having any success and even when you're not very good at it. Like uh, James was saying earlier, you know, you have to get through that bit where you're not very good and you're, you're plinking and you're, you're missing keys. You have to get through that point to the point where you're able to produce something that's good enough for someone else to hear or read or, you know, hang in a gallery, whatever it is you want to do. Yeah, he was quite late. I mean, he was 29 when he wrote his first book, which is kind of quite late. For what it, had he been doing up Running to then? a jazz bar. And he talks about that in um, what I talk about when I talk about running as well. He says that he was just watching a baseball game and he suddenly thought, gosh, I should, I should write a novel. Yeah. <laughs> he just went home and started on it. <laughs> Amazing. There is this, this air, and I think it often contributes um, to writers' reputations, to um, the way that they are, they're enjoyed. And I, I don't think it detracts anything from, from the writing itself. But there is a mystique, isn't there? Uh, it's partly to do with... Uh, it would be unfair to call him a recluse, but he is not an obviously public figure. He's not a joiner. He's not, he's not a joiner. He's not one of life's joiners. Um, but that idea, and I think, again, it was, it was touched on a little bit by what you were saying, that he is almost, there's something sort of seer-like, in a way. This person mm. is just going to explain things. That we don't quite know how. We don't, they're not going to reveal everything. Um, and that idea of his mysterious unconscious. I love that thing where the, the thing that the lieutenant who has the vision in the well... The thing that he really has kind of, you know, the, the, the book is he's told that he's not going to die, so he knows that he's not going to die, and he, he comes to believe, see this as a curse. And it's that in the, when the light fills the well, he can't see the thing that's, come, that's making shape. It's like the, the final clicking into place of meaning that he's hoping will happen just doesn't happen. Mm. And he's spent the rest of his life feeling, I mean, that's just... It's just being alive, isn't it? That's, yeah. That, yeah. that you never, ever quite get there. There's never, always something elusive yeah. that you're trying to, trying to get hold of. Um, <clears throat> you mentioned Radiohead earlier, and this sort of has made me think of... I'm a massive Radiohead fan, but it means that when they're about to release a new piece of music, I have this slight anxiety, which is, what if it's no good? <laughs> and I'll feel really sort of disappointed. But if you're a Murakami fan, is, do you have a similar thing? It, when you're waiting for the next book to arrive, are you kind of like, yeah, but what if I don't like it? Am I going to suddenly betray this relationship that I have with a writer? Do you ever feel like that about writers, or is it just me? <laughs> I, th I, I have that with... Uh, Every, you know, I have that with Radiohead as well. I remember I had it with uh, uh, Ian Banks' uh, rip for his last couple of books. I was, you know, you just, yeah, you don't want to be let down. But at the same time, it'd be very churlish to, if you love someone's work, to, you know, you know whinge about not liking something. And, and then sometimes you can find that something that didn't hit you the first time around, maybe you come back to it a few mm. years later when you've changed, and then you realize actually, oh no, it was. It's brilliant. I was just an idiot then. <laughs> yeah, not everything can be a, a banger, can exactly, it? I mean, you've yeah. got to, you know, sometimes artists across art forms are trying things out. 
And they don't always totally work. I mean, I don't know how you explain some of Radiohead, but... <laughs> that would that's, that's, be the next Vintage Podcast Live, where we would discuss Radiohead for six hours. I'd actually love that. Can we do that? Let's put it on the list. I think there is that thing, is, you know, when you're sitting down trying to, trying to piece together some of the, the, the odder albums of Radiohead. But, you know, you know that the people who created it are the people who created... You know, okay, computer. So you kind of—it's a bit like that with a writer. You you have to sort of pay out. Yes. You know, you have to give them some time. You and, absolutely and, do. And figure yeah. out it may be you, not them. Yeah. I mean, I and I. I, I, mean, I don't really like ever thinking it may be me. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, I know. I think great, that's a, that's a, that's always a challenge, isn't it? When you think this is just maybe this is just terrible. Maybe they just did it for the money. I should make it clear. I am a fan of Radiohead. <laughs> it's just since somebody said the to me, you know, movies, yeah. you know, without Radiohead, there would have been no Coldplay, and that kind of altered my view forever, Ooh. really. Controversial. You can't blame Radiohead for Coldplay. You can't. <laughs> but can you? That's the question. Anyway. Um, Jeremy, you, um, so I was just going to say, because we've had uh, Elephant Vanishes has been turned into a stage production, Norwegian has so been so. turned into a film. Uh, have you ever, or will you ever be tempted to take something from Murakami and turn it into a piece of music? Well, uh, on our last record, actually, one of the songs was pretty heavily inspired by uh, what I talk about when I talk about running, which, as you might have guessed from how much I'm talking about it now, is one of my uh, favourites of his. Uh, but um, aside from that, I think it would be very challenging to, to directly translate uh, a Murakami novel into a, into a pop song. I mean, in general, turning a novel into a pop song is, is quite difficult. I mean, I guess Wuthering Heights <laughs> would be one example. <laughs> uh, a, a great example. Yeah. Um, is that the exception that proves the rule? Uh, I can't, possi- it's hard possibly. to think of another, I can't, I can't think of it? another. Maybe you've just sent me a challenge, Will, which I'll there you have go. to... Yeah. So what's the name of the current album from Summer Camp that you can hear this song? <laughs> oh, our last record was called uh, Bad Love, and we're just working on our fourth at the moment. Uh, Elizabeth, who's in the band with me, is sitting there. And is, and is embarrassed. Vi- visibly cringing right now. mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> Tough. Well, listen, I think I would like to say, uh, as well as thanking Spiritland uh, and everybody who's been a guest here today, I'd like to say a huge thank you to all of you for coming. Yeah. It's been a really Amazing. lovely way yeah, to spend the Sunday. Really I hope you. you all agree. Uh, we've had lots of things to talk about and to share. Um, but if I could just ask you to put your hands together for everybody here at Spiritland and for John and for Jeremy as well. Thank you. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.